welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. You've probably heard me talk about them before. I love this company that is known for its delicious superfood mushroom elixirs and especially mushroom coffees. I have been starting my day with their ground mushroom coffee with lion's mane for a long time. And I love how much it helps me focus and stay creative and productive the whole day. Mushroom coffee is more than just regular coffee. The addition of this incredible mushroom, Lion's Mane, supports productivity and creativity in a really unique way. This coffee also includes chaga, which I've talked about on this podcast before. It's known as the king of mushrooms, and I love it as a functional mushroom because it supports whole body health and its antioxidant properties uh, give it a special ability to help support regular immune system function. One question I get a lot when it comes to this is, does this coffee taste like mushrooms? And I can guarantee and want to make sure I explain, it tastes just like regular coffee, not at all like mushrooms, but you get the benefits of these incredible mushrooms that, like I said, they improve my whole day. Mushroom coffee is also gentle and easy on the gut. So I find I'm much less jittery than when I drink other types of coffee and there's no crash at the end. The reason I love Four Sigmatic so much, all of their products are organic, vegan, and gluten-free, and they test every single batch in a third-party lab to make sure it doesn't have any heavy metals or allergens, bad bacteria, yeast, molds, mycotoxins, pesticides, etc. So you are getting not just really high-quality coffee, but also that extra boost from these highly beneficial mushrooms. And I personally know the founder of Four Sigmatic and the standards that go into these products. They stand behind everything with a 100% money back guarantee. I worked out an exclusive offer just for podcast listeners to receive a 10% discount on any Four Sigmatic order. It's a perfect time to try all of their best-selling blends. Like I said, I love their mushroom coffee with lion's mane. Also a really big fan of their reishi elixir and reishi cacao for at night to help me drift into really deep restful sleep and they have other single and blended mushroom elixirs that I often incorporate during the day because they don't have caffeine but do give a boost of antioxidants and other beneficial compounds. To check all of it out go to foursigmatic.com forward slash wellness mama and use the code wellness mama at checkout to save 10%. So again that's Four Sigmatic, F O U R S I G M A T I C dot com forward slash Wellness Mama and the code Wellness Mama to save 10% off your order. This episode is brought to you by Glad Skin, an incredible new product and resource for anyone who is struggling with eczema. This product is rooted in a really unique scientific understanding of the skin's microbiome. GladSkin has unearthed an innovative new way to solve eczema that helps to treat the root and not just the symptom. It's a new category of non-prescription eczema treatment rooted in indolcin, which I hope I'm saying right, um, science that has received recognition from today's leading dermatologists and pediatricians. While most microbiome studies have focused on the health implications of what's found deep in the gut, we're now finding that healthy skin just like a healthy gut, requires a balance of bacteria. In fact, four out of five people with eczema have a specific type of imbalance in their skin bacteria or their skin microbiome. And this is where GLAD skin comes in. When the skin balance 
bacteria gets out of balance, eczema is more likely to flare. So a targeted approach that takes into account the microbiome's good and bad bacteria is critical to relieving the redness and itching of eczema. Although new and unique in its approach in the US, this has already been a proven solution for eczema in Europe for five years and received recognition from leading dermatologists and pediatricians. It's also been accepted by the National Eczema Association and is a different approach altogether compared to steroid creams and traditional over-the-counter moisturizers. The best part, GladSkin is hypoallergenic and free of steroids, fragrances, drying alcohols, and harmful preservatives. It's stored fresh in a pharmaceutical quality bottle, so they don't need to use the chemical preservatives found in most over-the-counter creams and lotions. And I hear from a lot of you whose children have eczema, and I'm so excited to get to share this resource. You can find out more and get an automatic 10% discount by going to wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash glad skin, G-L-A-D-S-K-I-N. So again, that's wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash glad skin to get a 10% discount. It should be automatic, but you can also use the code wellnessmama10 if you have any trouble. Hello, welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and wellness.com. That's wellness with an E on the end. My new line of hair care, toothpaste, and hand sanitizer. I think you are really going to enjoy this episode. I'm here with Christopher Walker, who is the CEO and co-founder of natural health products brand Umzu. He's also the author and creator of The Thermo Diet and the first person to graduate from Duke's neuroscience program in just three years. We talk about his incredible story in this episode from performing surgery on a patient at age 16, starting at age 16, his own brain tumor diagnosis at age 19, how he recovered from that, and everything he's learned along the way. He now helps millions of people to recover their health naturally. He also, at one point with his brain tumor, had testosterone that was down to 11, and he got it back up above 1,100. I've gotten an increasing number of questions from you guys about husbands and significant others having low testosterone, and we address that in this episode. He also makes a really fascinating and compelling case for a lot of the common dietary and fitness information that you would get on the internet or from even experts being problematic. I think a lot of you already know some of these things uh, because you guys are pretty astute, but I think he makes a really strong case. I think it's a fascinating episode, and I'm really curious to see what you think of it. Without further ado, let's join Chris Walker. Chris, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Katie. Glad to be here. I'm excited to chat with you. I've known you in social circles and in kind of the business world for a while, but I don't think I've ever gotten to delve into your story. And in researching for this, I read a fact I'm going to want you to elaborate on, which is that you did surgery, I believe, at 16 years old. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I don't think it was entirely legal, but I did it. And it was in uh, Mexico. And it, it's, it, you know, I didn't, I don't think I understood like how cool it was at the time, but I, I thought it was really cool. But I didn't realize, I guess, that 16 year olds don't usually do that. My uncle is a doctor. And when I was 16, he like I always wanted to be a surgeon. So he basically brought me down to Mexico on a mission trip with a group of doctors. So it was, they were all from like the Northeast. And so, you know, he worked in uh, Lebanon, New Hampshire. So there was like people with him and Dartmouth College and then uh, 
couple of Yale surgeons and I think a Georgetown guy. And then we all just basically went down there and I could speak Spanish. So I uh, was the translator. <laughs> we, we were basically in the OR for, you know, probably 16 to 18, hour, 18 hours a day. You know, they were getting tired after a couple of weeks. So the, one of the Yale surgeons was, he basically was like, Hey, Chris, you want to, you want to do this one? <laughs> so I, uh, scrubbed in the, you know, the, the nurses like showed me how to scrub in and get sterile. And then he, uh, it was a bladder stone removal. So he basically just took out a Sharpie and this guy, you know, probably late fifties, early sixties guy, uh, needed a bladder stone removal. So he was just laying there on the table unconscious from, you know, the anesthesia and the surgeon took a Sharpie, drew a line and showed me how to do it. And I did the surgery, took the bladder stone out. It was pretty wild. Very cool. Like seeing all, you know, just cutting in with a scalpel really. And then seeing the different layers of tissue and going into the fat, into the muscle, and then opening up the, uh, main cavity there and he showed me where the bladder was it was basically like put your hand in there and find the stone <laughs> and then I, I found the stone and gripped around it and then you just cut the bladder in you know one clean line with the scalpel and then I took it out and I started sewing it back up but I let him finish it because I had gone to a uh, like a medical symposium at Georgetown the year prior and because Georgetown offers this, or I don't know if they still do, but they did back then for kids that want to be surgeons, they have like a symposium for a week where you go and like surgeons teach kids how to do it. Like all the, you know, a bunch of different medical stuff on campus. And uh, so I learned how to suture a banana, but I didn't necessarily feel super confident in suturing a person <laughs> at that point. But I did take the stone out and I got all the way in there and did the whole surgical part. But uh, I let the guy finish up the, the suturing. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And I also read that you are the first person to graduate from Duke's neuroscience program in three years. How did you get interested in neuroscience? Uh, that, that was mainly for personal interest because, you know, I went to Duke just in, in the first year. Uh, they have you enroll for just pre-med or pre-engineering or whatever pre-law. So I was pre-med. And then after my freshman year, I had a lot of problems. Like I had all these issues my senior year in high school and then my whole freshman year of college, a lot of health issues. And uh, one of which was, you know, I, I had a, like a really more acute health issue with ulcers, but that, that didn't really play into it as much. But the, uh, I had an issue with uh, what I found out was a brain tumor after the fact, you know, I had, to, I had to take my sophomore year off and um, they ended up finding the brain tumor during the sophomore year. So that really, when I went back for my junior year, that like spurred the neuroscience uh, obsession essentially, because I wanted to figure out how to, how to solve the issue without using drugs or surgery. Cause I had a friend at the time in, in college who interestingly enough had the exact same tumor and she'd gotten it surgically removed but her personality was different afterward because it's pretty invasive surgery. You know, like they go straight in your nose, like through the base of your brain essentially, because it's in the pituitary gland. So it was, that's the part that really communicates with all the glands in the body. 
So it kind of spooked me that her personality was different after the surgery. So I didn't want to do surgery. And then I, I'd been on um, certain prescriptions, like leading up to the diagnosis before they even found it, they put me on different things. And then afterward as well. And I just didn't like how I felt on those prescription drugs. So I, I was like, I don't want to use any more of those and I don't want to do surgery. So I went back to school with kind of this hell bent attitude about fi fixing it myself naturally. And that was where the neuroscience came in. Gotcha. I feel like a lot of us in this, uh, in the health world kind of have a similar story of journey, tried to fix ourselves and figure out what was wrong and that leading to a much bigger research path. And certainly a brain tumor is probably on the extreme end of health problems that you can have. That seems like a pretty serious diagnosis. I'm curious what your early journey looked like and what were the things that you tried that worked and that, that didn't work? Because my journey was with Hashimoto's and trying to find my own recovery from that. I'm curious for you what those steps were. Yeah, good question. So the essentially, like at first, it was a bit overwhelming, which I'm sure you felt the same way. Like, where do you even start kind of thing? So um, I ended up pretty quickly just trying to strip away everything and like reevaluate everything that I was doing on a regular basis uh, to figure out and, and just kind of rebuild from square one uh, instead of trying to navigate all sorts of different, you know, fads and trends. And you know how it is in terms of like everywhere you look, there's some new health thing that's going on. And um, instead of looking at those things, I started to just, say, okay, what is everything I'm doing? So I, I took a few weeks and just was kind of being more mindful of, of all the different things I was doing in, in different areas, and whether it was what I was eating or stress levels, uh, how I was exercising. Uh, at that point, I'd been like very heavy into endurance training. And uh, I was racing triathlon on the national level, actually um, went to uh, nationals for triathlon and duathlon the year that I, I was diagnosed. So I was training a ton in terms of like pretty stressful cardio training. And um, I, I'd walked onto the Duke track team also. So I, I started like stripping away everything and then, and then looking into and researching like what's the actual best way to exercise, for example, what's the actual best way to eat. I got really into water fasting at the time. That was in 2000 and nine, I think 2010. So it was way before the uh, fasting thing was getting, you know, as popular as it is now. And there, it was very fringe, but I was looking more in that sense of like a, what's a foundational element of health. And I was, I was trying to search for like foundational things and things that weren't trendy, weren't, you know, some fad or some superfood or whatever. It was just more like, how does the body work? That was the main question. It was like, how do my hormones work because the, you know, having a tumor in the pituitary gland, the pituitary is the seat of your endocrine system. Like it's, it's really like the master control panel of your endocrine system because it's the direct communication from your brain to your thyroid, to your gonadal glands, depending on if you're a woman or a man and the liver. I mean, it's, they're all like, they have this interplay and this feedback loop there. Right. And the, uh, the gut, basically communicates up through the spinal cord via bacteria and hormone secretion, you know, in this feedback loop to the brain and the brain communicates with those glands and so on and so forth. So I started to learn about these feedback loops in the body 
And that was what really kind of clicked um, in terms of thinking that I could actually solve this naturally because, you know, in all the textbooks that if you look around the textbooks, they have these arrows in the kind of cyclical arrows between different glands in terms of the uh, illustrations. And it's a very simple way to, to like understand how the body works. Obviously the, the uh, mechanisms that trigger, you know, the cascade of events within those feedback loops can be very complicated, but especially scientifically, we know a decent amount about how they work, at least enough in terms of leverage thinking, like what are the big things that can make an impact in that feedback loop? So there was like feedback, uh, you know, that you can have, you can manipulate it. So that was like the turning point, I guess, in the, uh, the health journey of understanding that there were all these different variables that I could control and fundamentally, a lot of them just came down to certain things like, you know, big stuff was, was uh, micronutrient deficiencies. And if I was deficient in things, correcting those deficiencies can have a pretty profound effect on uh, facilitating positive feedback and rebalancing hormones. And then, you know, that kind of brings you into nutrition where it's like, what's the best way to eat to do this? And then moving up, you know, and I actually ended up building a pyramid about this. In my first book, I, I designed this pyramid uh, showing men how to do this in terms of, uh, and I called it the masculine optimization pyramid. But now with uh, the thermo diet, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's redesigned for both men and women. But it, it really just focuses on the base of the pyramid being micronutrients, uh, nutrition, moving up, lifestyle elements. There's a ton of stuff in lifestyle that people do uh, that, you know, it's either productive or counterproductive into facilitating like, you know, basically positive feedback and then training and then supplementation, which can kind of feedback down into micronutrients as well. So I started to kind of get clear on all this stuff and I was really obsessed with, you know, figuring it out and kind of have been for the last 10 years, really, maybe more. So that, that was essentially how I was thinking about the journey. I was trying not to fall into any traps in terms of fad diets and that sort of thing. And, I, it, you know, I'm not perfect, but I've seen over the years, even things that I believed before just aren't necessarily true. And I, when I reexamine those beliefs, it's only because I wasn't taking a, like a fundamental look at them. It was more like it was more popular at that point. But they come and go. So hopefully that was a helpful answer. That was. I'd love to go deeper on a few of those points and understand them because I've certainly heard of the thermo diet and seen your work in this. Um, and I love that you mentioned you broke it out with the differences between men and women. I remember from reading your story, if I'm remembering the number correctly, your testosterone was down to 11 at one point. Is that right? Yeah, 11 nanograms per deciliter. And yeah, the initial, that was my initial pursuit in terms of hormones. Like as a guy, I was like focused on that. <laughs> Because that was, in my mind, like a high leverage area. Because I knew if I could figure out how to increase it naturally um, and have my body produce more of it naturally, then that would take care of a lot of stuff. And because a lot of the symptoms are related to you know low testosterone levels in guys, and that's a high leverage thing. So I ended up increasing it all the way to just under 1,200 nanograms per deciliter naturally uh, within a year and a half of that first measurement. 
What were, do you feel like some of the biggest things that led to that change? Because my audience is largely women, but I hear from a lot of women who their husbands are dealing with very low testosterone. And I've read, for instance, some of the statistics that men today on average have much lower testosterone than even their grandfather's generation. So I'm curious, what were the things that were needle movers? Because the conventional wisdom seems to be that it's hormone replacement therapy or some other pretty questionable things that you can try. What worked for you? Yeah. So if you look at that, that pyramid structure in terms of the micronutrients, nutrition, lifestyle elements, exercise, and supplementation, there's certain things in each category that are the big leverage ones. And, and it, it's kind of unfortunate that that's the conventional wisdom right now that people default to testosterone replacement therapy. And even same for women like this. And that's one caveat I want to say is that this, this uh, framework works for women. But women's, you know, women's hormones are just slightly like the levels, or the ratios are different, right? But the same things are going to work to balance a woman's hormones. So in terms of micronutrients, there's, there are definitely key micronutrients that are directly measured scientifically, just with a huge amount of research uh, that correlate with testosterone production in the body. So identifying those deficiencies is, is probably the first step honestly, and it's super easy to do, especially nowadays. Back then, they didn't have all these, you know, micronutrient testing startups and every, you know, they're all over the place now, but there's a lot of these different services that you can go to online that are just mail order that you can do measurements and you can do different types like saliva or hair or blood. And you can, you know, probably the most accurate way to do it is actually try, you know, both hair and blood, for example and then get kind of compare them, right? So I would identify first what the deficiencies are, and it's as simple as just taking a deficiency test and then work to correct those deficiencies. The big ones for guys for testosterone that are like needle movers are magnesium and zinc. And then for, it's similar for women because guys have a lot of thyroid issues as well, but with um, the thyroid like iodine and selenium are also big players in that and they can give you good clues on like what your what your issue is and vitamin D3 is another huge one uh it's actually a hormone but uh that one is you know most people are deficient in that and then choline is another good one you know I mentioned earlier about like the three key organs that people want to pay attention to are the thyroid the reproductive glands and the liver and choline is a big one, especially in the liver, because it helps your liver function properly. But choline is estimated at 92% nationwide deficiency in the U.S. for men and women. Uh, but it helps also methylate estrogen. So especially for guys, but for women also, like you don't want excess estrogen. Estrogen is not really the female hormone. I'd say progesterone is. But estrogen is you know, rampantly high across the population. And that's really what's going to throw off hormonal balance in general. So I would say just take that as the first step is just take a micronutrient analysis and actually look at the, you know, the core vitamins and minerals in, in your body at, at the moment and see what you're deficient in and then correct those deficiencies first and work on that. And it's, it's a process, but it doesn't necessarily need to take that long. I mean, that's where, you know, strategic supplementation can come in handy is if someone identifies that they have a you know pretty glaring magnesium and zinc and uh, iodine deficiency or selenium deficiency then 
it's super easy to like find a very bioavailable source of those things and just start taking them on a regular basis and then remeasure, you know, even once a month to gauge your progress in there. All these, these uh, vitamins and minerals are necessary for proper hormone production and balance between the hormones. Cause you'll find that like if it, hormones are really, and I'm about to release a new episode, we've been doing this docu-series called Think Again. And uh, I'm releasing one actually after this recording uh, today <laughs> on hormones. And uh, it's, it goes into a lot of detail about this subject, but the thing to look at with hormones is that you can't really measure them without relation to other hormones. So they're more helpful in, in terms of like ratio measurements. Where, for example, for guys, like testosterone to cortisol ratio is extremely important. Cortisol being the chief stress hormone, it acts antithetically to testosterone as a reproductive hormone in men. And you see the same thing in women with progesterone. So uh, you want to measure both of them if you're going to be measuring your hormones, which is also really uh, insightful for people. And a lot of times when a guy goes to the doctor and sees, oh, you, you know, the doctor's like, oh, you have low testosterone. Typically, they're not measuring cortisol and they're not measuring E2 as, as you know, estradiol. So um, it's helpful to know that the testosterone is low, but it's, they don't give you enough data points on these standard blood tests that like the average doctor is going to order in order to, to figure out really what the cause of the low T is. And that's where it gives you a more rich map of, you know, kind of an action plan if you actually measure those other hormones at the same time as as uh, measuring your micronutrients. So you can see, oh, I'm, I have low testosterone, but my magnesium is really low. My zinc's really low. Um, maybe my calcium's really high. Sodium, potassium are low. You know, that sort of thing is gonna give you a rich map and a kind of an action plan of like how, how you can acutely start to attack that, that issue. Because, and I think they do that specifically for the reason of selling those, those uh, testosterone replacement therapies, because the way that the, the whole pharmaceutical industry is designed in the medical establishment is, is quite genius, but it's, you know, beyond most people's uh, understanding or just, be, just because most people don't actually, you know, aren't super interested in it. So they're not like digging in, but the way it's designed is they give you a limited amount of data and then they give you a prescription based on that small amount of data, not with the intention of solving the issue, but actually just for selling the drug. Uh, it's not necessarily the doctor who knows even what they're doing, but that's just how they're trained to do it. So um, without measuring though the other uh, biomarkers, like estrogen, for example, is typically not measured in a simple test that would identify low testosterone for a guy. But the issue is that there's a big risk in taking TRT, especially if you have higher estrogen levels. And if, if liver markers are off, for example, there's a lot of research showing that testosterone replacement therapy over time can lead to prostate cancer and, and tumors growing in the prostate. So the tumors are actually highly correlated with excess estrogen levels. And when someone takes a bioidentical exogenous testosterone, uh, hormone like that, what happens is they're not controlling the estrogen production and the estrogen is going to compensate and ramp up production uh, because especially because the, the basic core health of that person's body is not in check at the moment. So uh, the estrogen is, is far more likely to ramp up in terms of the production. And when used chronically, that can lead to tumors. 
it's it's pretty common to find that and it's it's pretty well known in, in medical research but the the tests that people do aren't necessarily comprehensive enough to know uh if they're at at risk for that sort of thing unless they go and get a more detailed test that makes so much sense and i'm glad you brought up the liver aspects i feel like this doesn't get talked about enough and you mentioned choline which ended up being a big needle mover for me. One thing I had to learn to navigate, and I loved your input on this, I also can't tolerate eggs. It leads to kind of immediate skin issues for me. And that's the most obvious source of choline, dietary source at least. What do you recommend when it comes to supplementing choline as far as source? Uh, actually, um, liver is is actually great. for <laughs> Like eating, it's, it's kind of interesting because glandulars aren't super popular, but they are gaining in popularity. And it's obviously really important to like the source of the glandular supplement is very important or the not even a supplement just if someone's going to eat liver i wouldn't recommend buying it like just you know standard chicken livers from the grocery store unless you know that they're like really legit but especially around around here in boulder uh, there's a lot of local farms so it's pretty easy to buy glands because typically the farmers just throw them away so you can just ask them for it but liver is a good one to to consume like once a week twice a week from a really high quality source. Uh, another thing is just isolated choline supplements. The, uh, I typically use choline by tartrate. It's not the most highly avail- uh, bioavailable one, but it's cost versus bioavailability. It's pretty good and um, you know quite useful. And uh, you can also use, there's other ones like alpha GPC, city choline, CDP choline. The, the supplements are pretty useful for that. The, the thing with eggs is, uh, my first thought about that is probably just a histamine intolerance, which, um, you know, is pretty common. So if that would cause a skin issue, that, that would be the case. Is, it, is the skin issue kind of like hives type of thing or itchy? Yeah, and that was actually another question I had potentially on the list for you was anything potentially to do for histamine intolerance because that is one that comes up relatively often in my community as well. Oh, okay. As far as I know, the, the histamine issues are like a lot of it is gut linked. So it, it would be something in terms of, you know, addressing the any sort of gut health problems that, that someone might have using a really good probiotic, but also monitoring really what they're eating. And I think as far as I know, histamine intolerance is, is one that takes a while to overcome. Uh, so it's not something that you can just take a supplement and immediately have you know be be able to overcome it like today kind of thing but um a lot of it is gut linked and then with the liver um certain liver supplements can help with it like n-acetylcysteine is really good olive leaf extracts really good going back to basics in terms of like inflammation issues most of which comes from the gut but can can uh you know and definitely does manifest in in other organs in the body so i would just focus on on gut health is like the big lever on that. You know, I've had that in the past too. I've had issues with histamine intolerance, like even to the point where I couldn't drink orange juice because it was causing, you know, a skin flare up, which was crazy. But the more I focused on the gut health, the more that subsided and I haven't had those issues. Fascinating. Okay. So to circle back to the liver side, um, I agree that I think this is a huge key. What are some other ways that we can support the liver? I feel like that is a common factor for a lot of people. Uh, yeah. So, uh, one point I did want to make about the liver was like, you know, I'm, I'm releasing my new book on the thermo diet in the new year. And I have a chapter in there about, um, sugar and how misunderstood sugar really is. 
And one, one of the issues that there's a couple factors in liver issues and one of which is just chronic choline deficiency in general. So, um, identifying the choline deficiency, I think is a really good first step because so many people, like almost the entire population, you know, being over 90% of people that were measured in, in a couple thousand subject group, having a choline deficiency is a big deal because of the relationship with, with the carbohydrates and the way that they're processed in the liver. So uh, sugar is blamed for fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And the, the actual culprit to it is a combination of, uh, it's, not, it's not the carbohydrates themselves, it's actually the combination of the choline deficiency with excess polyunsaturated fat consumption which, you know, I just call it PUFA. Like that's what we all just call it PUFA. So the, the polyunsaturated fats are so easily oxidized in the body that what they do is they cause an inflammation in, in all sorts of different areas of your body. But one of the big ones is actually your liver. So when you have the concert of the choline deficiency and the polyunsaturated fat consumption and the excess causing that inflammation in the liver, that's actually what causes a lot of these liver problems in people. Uh, and it's not, you know, fructose, which is what's being blamed for the whole thing. Like eating fruit is causing liver disease. That is the, those are the, the number, you know, number one big levers is correcting the choline deficiency and stop eating polyunsaturated fat, which, you know, comes from vegetable oils mainly. That's where people mainly get it in their diet but also in nuts, seeds, you know, other, like just pressed oils, that sort of stuff. Anything that's not, it's mostly plant-based oils are the ones that are full of polyunsaturated fat. And I know that's not really conventional wisdom to be like, don't eat plant-based oils because uh, plant-based is such a, a trend right now, but the animal oils are, are far lower or, you know, some of them have no polyunsaturated fat but they're far lower, lower in polyunsaturated fat and they don't lead to that toxic level of, of that consumption. You know, a lot of people are eating foods like every restaurant that I know of, unless I go in and there's some local ones where I, I can go in and be like, can you cook this in butter? And they're totally cool with it. Especially chefs love butter. I don't think they really want to cook with the canola oil and the rapeseed oil and rice bran oil and all that stuff. But uh, it's just what, you know, the owners of the restaurants really supply to them. So a lot of them will accommodate, you know, using butter. But I would say for liver problems, like that's the easiest way to to start healing your liver is stop eating polyunsaturated fat, overcome the choline deficiency, uh, stop consuming things like, like acetaminophen is Tylenol is like very hard on the liver. And there's been a lot of research in terms of hormones because when the liver is taxed with, with uh, NSAIDs, you know, stuff like Advil and Aleve, Tylenol, it actually um, starts to overproduce a hormone or a, a protein, binding protein for hormones called SHBG, which is sex hormone binding globulin. And that binds the, the active sex hormones in the body, the reproductive hormones. It makes them so they can't bind to receptor sites. So that can lead to alone a lot of um, hormonal imbalance issues. Uh, whereas like the body might be producing enough of that, that hormone on its own, but the liver is actually mediating all of it and uh, causing those issues downstream because of 
SHBG production in the liver. And another issue with the liver and why you want to keep it really healthy is, is for thyroid reasons, because uh, T4 is sent from and produced in the thyroid gland, but sent you know, to the liver. And the liver is where the tyrosine is kind of cleaved off of it. So it becomes active thyroid hormone, T3. And if the liver is not functioning properly because of certain things like this, like the polyunsaturated fat consumption, uh, the lack of glucose in it, the lack of choline in it, and, you know, consumption of regular pain relievers or other things that are going to, or a lot of alcohol, things that are going to tax the liver uh, are going to basically hamper that conversion to T3. And then they're going to be producing too, it's going to be producing too much SHBG. So it's a pretty simple way to look at it, uh, very, you know, fact-based, but I just don't think a lot of people really know about it yet. You know, hopefully that's a good starting point for, for people that are listening to this. I'm so glad you brought that up. I wrote years ago about the problem with vegetable oils and polyunsaturated fats and took a lot of heat for it. I'm guessing you have people that probably don't agree with you on that as well, but truly like my stance has always been our body doesn't really know what to do with these oils, like you said, and they're relatively new to our diets. I've also seen some data implicating them in a lot of other problems besides just liver health. So I'm so glad that you talk about that. What are some other myths that you think are related to a lot of the common dietary dogma? You mentioned um, the sugar aspect and the polyunsaturated vegetable oils. Are there other areas that you think are commonly spouted as diet advice that are really, it's poor advice? Yeah. So when it comes to micronutrients, I think a big myth Uh, Going back to like, you know, a lot of plant-based dogma, it's, and this kind of transcends plant-based in general, but just looking at, you know, the basic um, healthy eating dietary advice that people are going to just throw out there and regurgitate without questioning it, a lot of it causes micronutrient deficiencies, even foods that people think are generally healthy. Things like nuts and seeds, like I referenced before, even more so than the, uh, the polyunsaturated fat aspect to them is is the anti-nutrient aspect and anti-nutrients are interesting because they are you know essentially these these charged molecules that that will bind useful minerals in your body so a big one that that i think is pretty common in talking about it with um in like the paleo world especially has been uh phytic acid and the fact that phytic acid can so easily chelate minerals out of the body. Uh, I read a study that was a big review on all the, you know, available research at that time on phytic acid. And in the, in the opening section and the introduction of the, of the review, the researchers pretty much blatantly claimed like they believe that phytic acid consumption is, is quite possibly the biggest reason why across the entire world, people are, are deficient in a lot of different micronutrients just because it's being chelated or all these, these nutrients are being chelated by this anti-nutrient. And that's an interesting way to look at it because one of the biggest things that I, that I think most people don't ask themselves when it comes to health. And I think that's why a lot of people kind of go down these rabbit holes in terms of trends is the fact that barely anyone ever defines what health is and the world health organization defines it as the absence of disease which is completely unhelpful, right? That doesn't really tell you how to thrive. It just tells you how, like, if you're, you're healthy, if, you're don't, if you don't have a disease, like, that's it's kind of ridiculous in my, in my mind. 
But, you know, as far as I've seen over the years and just studying all this stuff, like it comes down to really two things and being, you know, one of which depends entirely on the other being uh, micronutrient deficiencies are the, the biggest cause of dysfunction in health. They're also the easiest thing to solve. And then that leads to hormonal balance. So if the hormones are all balanced, which implies, you know, the ratio aspect that, that I was talking about earlier in relation to one another, then you are going to be healthy. That's what real health is. I think that's the biggest misunderstanding in just general population of people is that it's really quite simple when you start to think about it that way, you know, and then you start to, you can make decisions about the foods that you want to eat or the supplements that you take or the uh, exercise that you do all based around that really simple definition of what health is being health, being healthy is not having micronutrient deficiencies and having balanced hormones. So it's a lens that you can see all of your decisions within and you can start to make uh, positive choices. What, like the way I frame it when I talk about it is usually activators and blockers. So things that, that are activators are things that it, you can do at any time in the day that it, that's going to bring you toward uh, that state of health and then blockers being something that, that you do or consume that is actually taking you away from it. It's, it's uh, causing hormonal imbalance or it's causing an efficiency. So uh, it's, it's a really radically simple way to think about it. And that starts to inform like the truth about these dogmatic things that people believe, for example, like the nuts and seeds thing. When you look at all the, the data on nuts and seeds, they're not uh, very healthy foods at all uh, when looked at in that sense. Like they're full of polyunsaturated fat. They're also full of anti-nutrients. And on top of it, 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 I, I read this review on, on um, nuts, for example, and they looked at all the different types of nuts that people typically eat, almonds, walnuts, you know, et cetera. And they found that the only one that people, that the human digestive system can actually get access to bioavailable minerals within it is walnuts and it's magnesium. Despite the fact that all these nuts also can, they contain a lot of minerals. The problem is that there's no compatibility with the human gut. So your gut can't actually get the minerals out of them. And they're full of anti-nutrients, which are going to bind minerals that are already in your system. So they're a net negative in terms of how I'm looking at that. And that's why I would say that nuts and seeds aren't healthy. Same with, with uh, certain things like, like um, vegetables. If you define vegetables in the, in the sense of, of like the stems and the leaves of plants, uh, they contain a lot of anti-nutrients and goitrogens, things that block iodine uptake into the thyroid gland. So, you know, when you look at all the different, all the available data on them, it, it doesn't seem like they're extremely healthy. And I, I did a video on, on uh, vegetables a couple years ago on YouTube and, you know, it got a lot of hate for sure, but it also, a lot of people were like really interested in that idea because I, I basically said that vegetables aren't necessary to be healthy. And then I also demonstrated, you know, with showed different research showing that they're potentially not just not necessary, but there's certain aspects of them that might be causing uh, health issues in the human body. So there's, there's a lot of random stuff, but I think the most helpful thing to, for people to, to grasp from this and take away is that if you define health as not being deficient in key micronutrients and having balanced hormones, then it helps you to, to make choices about 
you know, all the different things that you eat, all the different things that you do in your lifestyle for stress management, for sleep, et cetera. And then all the, like the way you exercise and the type of supplements that you use and that sort of thing. It's just like a very simple way to look at it, but very accurate. So high leverage. I will put some resources in the show notes and link to the video you mentioned at wellnessalmond.fm for all of you listening. But if someone is new to the idea of avoiding phytic acid, you made you kind of explained all the sources of vegetable oils and, and polyunsaturated fats. What are some of the main key places you want to avoid phytic acid? You mentioned nuts. What other things do people want to be cautious of? Um, beans. So beans is an interesting one too. And that, that was another controversial thing that I, I've done. I've done plenty of videos where I talk about this stuff and people don't necessarily uh, receive it very well, but beans is one of them. And I know that's kind of hard for people, especially in certain cultures, like beans are kind of a mainstay in those cultures, but there's, you know, beans and then stuff like brown rice, it, because the, um, and that's, that's something else that's a bit against the dogma, but brown rice has a lot of phytic acid in it, as well as, uh, certain, uh, heavy metals that are, you know, very commonly tested and found in brown rice, like lead and arsenic and mercury. Uh, and it's because the bran of the grain, and, th and this is, you know, the same is true of other, other grains that are like these whole grains that have the uh, bran still intact on the outside of the, of the grain. They find that the bran of the grain is, is highly concentrated in these, in these things. But then the, when you, you know, shuck the grain and like, aren't consuming the grain it's or the the bran of the grain itself it's more of just a pure starch like white rice you know something like jasmine rice just more pure starchy so it, it there is actually a study that that showed that and i know this isn't popular for um vegan and vegetarians uh you know in terms of what they would want to hear but there was a whole study on it that demonstrated that vegetarian diets because they're so high in these these phytic acid containing foods like nuts, seeds, beans, and, and whole grains, that they're actually at you know, very high risk for nutrient deficiencies in specifically in iron, zinc, and trace minerals like iodine. So those are the main things that I would pay attention to in terms of um, phytic acid. And another issue with phytic acid is that it actually, it's like an inhibitor essentially of different enzymes. Uh, such as trypsin and pepsin, and then amylase alpha, and so these digestive enzymes, and that's why a lot of people, when they when they consume a ton of these foods, they start to have digestive issues uh, because the enzymes aren't actually working properly because they're being inhibited by the phytic acid itself, uh, and, the, and it's in such high quantities. You know, pepsin itself is the is the main digestive enzyme in your gut, and this you know there's plenty of research showing that phytic acid directly inhibits it. So not only are you not able to even get access to a lot of these nutrients, but it's messing up the, you know, just a balanced gut function in general. Yeah, exactly. I'm so glad you talk about that. And it certainly does go against a lot of the common wisdom that vegetables, beans, and brown rice might not be the best option. But you're right. I've seen that data as well. Uh, and certainly you can do things I've read like pressure cooking reduces phytic acid. It doesn't fully eliminate it. Like there are ways to reduce it. And I know a lot of vegetarians and vegans who are trying to be conscious of that. But to your point, those do affect the body in a pretty serious way. 
This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. You've probably heard me talk about them before. I love this company that is known for its delicious superfood mushroom elixirs and especially mushroom coffees. I have been starting my day with their ground mushroom coffee with lion's mane for a long time. And I love how much it helps me focus and stay creative and productive the whole day. Mushroom coffee is more than just regular coffee. The addition of this incredible mushroom, Lion's Mane, supports productivity and creativity in a really unique way. This coffee also includes chaga, which I've talked about on this podcast before. It's known as the king of mushrooms, and I love it as a functional mushroom because it supports whole body health and its antioxidant properties uh, give it a special ability to help support regular immune system function. One question I get a lot when it comes to this is, does this coffee taste like mushrooms? And I can guarantee and wanna make sure I explain, it tastes just like regular coffee, not at all like mushrooms, but you get the benefits of these incredible mushrooms that, like I said, they improve my whole day. Mushroom coffee is also gentle and easy on the gut. So I find I'm much less jittery than when I drink other types of coffee and there's no crash at the end. The reason I love Four Sigmatic so much, all of their products are organic, vegan, and gluten-free, and they test every single batch in a third-party lab to make sure it doesn't have any heavy metals or allergens, bad bacteria, yeast, molds, mycotoxins, pesticides, etc. So you are getting not just really high-quality coffee, but also that extra boost from these highly beneficial mushrooms. And I personally know the founder of Four Sigmatic and the standards that go into these products. They stand behind everything with a 100% money back guarantee. I've worked out an exclusive offer just for podcast listeners to receive a 10% discount on any Four Sigmatic order. It's a perfect time to try all of their best-selling blends. Like I said, I love their mushroom coffee with lion's mane. Also a really big fan of their reishi elixir and reishi cacao for at night to help me drift into really deep restful sleep and they have other single and blended mushroom elixirs that I often incorporate during the day because they don't have caffeine but do give a boost of antioxidants and other beneficial compounds. To check all of it out go to foursigmatic.com forward slash wellness mama and use the code wellness mama at checkout to save 10%. So again, that's four sigmatic F O U R S I G M A T I C.com forward slash wellness mama and the code wellness mama to save 10% off your order. This episode is brought to you by glad skin, an incredible new product and resource for anyone who is struggling with eczema. This product is rooted in a really unique scientific understanding of the skin's microbiome. GladSkin has unearthed an innovative new way to solve eczema that helps to treat the root and not just the symptom. It's a new category of non-prescription eczema treatment rooted in indolcin, which I hope I'm saying right, um, science that has received recognition from today's leading dermatologists and pediatricians. While most microbiome studies have focused on the health implications of what's found deep in the gut, we're now finding that healthy skin, just like a healthy gut, requires a balance of bacteria. In fact, four out of five people with eczema have a specific type of imbalance in their skin bacteria or their skin microbiome. And this is where glad skin comes in. When the skin balance bacteria gets out of balance, eczema is more likely to flare. So a targeted approach that takes into account the microbiome's good and bad bacteria is critical to relieving the redness and itching of eczema. 
Although new and unique in its approach in the US, this has already been a proven solution for eczema in Europe for five years and received recognition from leading dermatologists and pediatricians. It's also been accepted by the National Eczema Association and is a different approach altogether compared to steroid creams and traditional over-the-counter moisturizers. The best part, Gladskin is hypoallergenic and free of steroids, fragrances, drying alcohols, and harmful preservatives. It's stored fresh in a pharmaceutical quality bottle, so they don't need to use the chemical preservatives found in most over-the-counter creams and lotions. And I hear from a lot of you whose children have eczema, and I'm so excited to get to share this resource. You can find out more and get an automatic 10% discount by going to wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash glad skin, G-L-A-D-S-K-I-N. So again, that's wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash glad skin to get a 10% discount. It should be automatic, but you can also use the code wellnessmama10 if you have any trouble. To flip it on on the positive side, so you made a case for some of the more common foods to avoid, um, and you talk about the thermo diet a lot online, and you mentioned it here. What are some of those core foods that are good to focus on that are high in micronutrients or high in the things that our body needs? Yep, good question. So the main ones that I like to just, like a simple way to remember it is just fruits and roots. And our our friend, uh, Michael Lovich, actually coined that term because <laughs> I was telling him all about about thermo stuff. And then he was like, Oh, fruits and roots. So that's just an easy way to remember it. The, the fruits themselves, like if you think about, and this goes back to like the vegetable issue. If you look at the definition of a vegetable being just like the leaves and the stem of the plant, they have a lot of protective mechanisms built in and these, these microtoxins that are released to protect the plant. But the root itself is the very nutrient rich part of the plant. And that's really what fuels, you know, the entire growth of everything. The roots are great for nutrient levels, uh, very easy to digest in terms of if they're, especially if they're prepared properly and and something like, um, and people might think about like, you know, with potatoes, for example, oxalates, the issue, like, or the easy thing with, with potatoes is you just boil them. And when you boil them, it's, there was a study showing that boiled potatoes, all the oxalates actually go out. And if you boil it in salt water, they go out into the salt water. So they leave the potato. It's easier to digest. You know, other roots being like sweet potatoes, yucca, you know, just easy starch. And then if you cook it well, then it'll uh, be easy to digest and get access to those nutrients bioavailable. Um, I've even seen people in in like the Ray Peat community uh, discussing certain things about if you boil potatoes and then leave them, you know, in the cold overnight, the starch that basically like creates this, this really good prebiotic starch that is easier to consume and easier to digest. Uh, with fruits, fructose is a great fuel. Glucose is a great fuel for the body. The nutrients in the fruits are extremely easy to digest and, and are bioavailable. Uh, fruits logically are just meant to be eaten, really. Uh, the seeds themselves are the aspect that people can't digest, right? So if you look at it in an evolutionary way, it makes total sense. It's very logical that you know, a fruit is going to ripen and if it gets overripe, it falls off, off the tree or the vine or wherever it is. And it has a seed in it or a bunch of seeds and they just kind of replant. It's like the circle of life. But even if it's consumed, the, the animal can't actually digest the seed inside of the fruit and then ends up, you know, defecating and it finds its way back somewhere and it you know, can grow again. Right. 
So I would focus on fruits and roots, and then I would focus on animal products, like from good quality sources. That's really the caveat with, with really everything. The quality of the source, of, especially with animal meat, is very important because it, like if you buy uh, meat or animal products that are, if the animals are mistreated, they live in you know, high cortisol you know, lifestyle, if they're injected with different hormones, if they have high estrogen levels, if they're not being fed what they actually should be eating. For example, if they're being fed, you know, soy and different things that are just completely unnatural uh, in order to fatten them up and create more estrogen, then that meat's not very healthy for a human to eat or in that milk or, or whatever animal product it is. But if the animal is treated well and actually matures in a normal, natural environment, then it's extremely healthy because uh, it's already, for example, you know, grass-fed beef, like grass-fed cows or grass-fed whatever, bison, game meat, that sort of thing. It's just eating its natural thing, its natural diet, and it's got the stomachs. Uh, these ruminant animals have multiple stomachs, and they have enough capacity to actually digest all the, the grass and um, do it properly. So it's the human eating the meat is actually the right step in that sequence of events not the human eating the grass because <laughs> we can't we can't digest those leaves and they are highly uh anti-nutrient dense so i would focus mainly on fruits roots and you know high quality meat really or animal products it's, it's quite simple and i know you have a facebook group about that as well and you mentioned your book i'll make sure those are both linked in the show notes as well are there any specific differences or considerations for women if they're starting out with this as compared to men obviously it worked drastically well for you with testosterone are there any special things women need to be cautious of in general not, not there's not much difference uh in terms of because it's such a foundational look at how the body works and it's just that the ratios are slightly different in women in terms of the, the hormones but that doesn't mean like the way that women's bodies actually function with the endocrine system. If you're consuming the, you know, similar things, it's going to naturally balance the, the female body in the way that it should. I would say a couple things that women specifically should pay attention to would be, you know, and you mentioned dealing with Hashimoto's. I think thyroid issues are, are much more common in women. I, I think it was like one in eight women have a thyroid problem or potentially even higher than that. So I would focus on what could be possibly causing that thyroid issue in the first place, and then holding that up against that lens of the definition of what's, what's healthy and what's not. Uh, and a lot of people, like a lot of women, actually end up focusing more on eating leafy greens and eating things that are potentially goitrogenic, where like kale, for example, is found to be highly goitrogenic, especially in, when it's eaten raw. Uh, where it blocks the iodine uptake in the thyroid, which is going to lead to basically compromised T4 production from the thyroid gland. So, you know, kind of taking a second look at if a woman's dealing with thyroid issues, then take a look at what could potentially be causing those, those thyroid problems in the first place in terms of like daily habits, nutrition habits, and deficiencies in, you know, in that like if someone's iodine deficient, but they eat a ton of leafy greens, then it, you know it's potentially causing that that problem for them. Uh, and then just focusing on things that are going to help with progesterone, which again is very similar for men and women. It just manifests itself slightly differently because uh, the the endocrine systems are uh, favoring different hormones really between the the two genders. 
Got it. And then this, I'm sure, could be its own entire podcast topic. So definitely we can just cover it briefly. But you also talk quite a bit about fitness online. And I'm curious, I know there are also a lot of misconceptions when it comes to the best things to do for overall fitness, just as you mentioned, first of all, probably defining that term like we do with health. But what is some of the common advice that you give related to fitness? Um, Usually, like with fitness, I guess the most blanket one would be uh, and this was the biggest realization for me because I, like I mentioned, I was focused on doing a lot of endurance training in the sports and that, in that aspect. And I thought it was healthy, but then I realized that really it's not at all. So that really informed how I started to think about fitness was, is it, a, am I doing a, a blocker or an activator? And a lot of fitness for people causes excess cortisol, uh, specifically endurance training, cardio training when it's done, you know, I guess chronically is the the right term for it. And that that became a term like chronic cardio, right? So it's something that, that will chronically elevate cortisol levels, uh, which chronically suppresses at the same time, reproductive hormones and, you know, testosterone and progesterone. So I would re-examine the volume of, of uh, cardio training that people do. And if they're having problems with their reproductive hormones and their sex drive, libido, and they're training a lot in doing endurance training, like normally, then I would re-examine that. And what was interesting was that I started looking at, especially for guys, but I know the same is true with women, is, you know, there's different muscle groups in men and women that can actually increase receptor sites for different hormones. So a lot of dogma with, with guys in terms of like, if you look at bodybuilding as an industry, if you look up on you know bodybuilding.com or T Nation or whatever, it's like how do you increase testosterone with different training? Uh, you're going to find a lot of stuff about squatting and deadlifting, which you know is not it's not inaccurate, but it's just heavily focused on that. However, the legs, and they say it because it activates a lot of muscle tissue at once, uh, which is also true. But the problem, or the I guess it's not even a problem; it's just the overlooked aspect of it is that I started looking into it and certain upper body muscle groups can actually express more androgen receptors over time with training. And they can basically express more of these receptor sites as opposed to the legs being more limited in increasing the expression of the receptor sites. So that got me interested in that in terms of androgen receptors. And, you know, and that's why you also see like in certain guys that end up having higher testosterone levels. And then even guys that like when they start taking steroids, uh, they start to, you start to see this expression of more muscle volume development in certain muscle groups. And it's because of that. And those muscle groups are for guys. It's like the traps, the shoulders, the upper back, upper chest, the arms. So, but those are things that can be trained you know, naturally to express more, more of those receptor sites. So they can actually bind more testosterone and you can grow more muscle in those areas, which, you know, in the, in, in the case of guys, like that's, you know, that's what a lot of people look at a guy that's got like big traps and shoulders is like, Oh, it's a, like a manly guy. Right. Um, it's kind of coded into our, our genetics and, you know, our evolutionary biology to like see that it, it looks strong. Right. Uh, with women, it, it's it's just different muscle groups that are ex- more expressive of, of other hormone sites that can help you know shape a, like a feminine body. 
being more, you know, in the hips. And it's usually also correlated with areas in like tissue areas that express more receptor um, estrogen storage. Like for guys, it, a lot of estrogen storage happens in the gut or like in the stomach area and the hips. And then same with, with women, it, uh, a lot of estrogen storage is also in those areas uh, in the hips, but also in like the glutes. So those areas though can be trained to have more favorable, uh, like less estrogen storage, but also, you know, more, uh, expression of, of, um, anabolic hormones naturally. So they start to shape the body. So that, that was how, once I started to realize that, that was how I started to look at fitness. It's almost an evolutionary biology lens of, of fitness of like what muscle groups are actually preferred in terms of, um, training those to have a better hormonal effect. And that got me onto like neuromuscular training specifically where it was, and this is the same for men and women. Uh, you can create more of that just by doing more explosive type training, uh, shorter bouts, less like chronic endurance training. Uh, so that the cortisol, you know, anytime someone physically trains, cortisol is going to elevate, but it's really about the ability to recover from the elevation of the cortisol and take advantage of the anabolic impact of that, you know, weight training or explosive training, like maybe sprinting or box jumps or something. So that the body actually starts to favor that and build those muscle groups up to support that sort of activity. And over time, it starts to really you know, become noticeable. Uh, it's easy to see when people are training that way versus like, if you think about, you know, people that run marathons and everything, like, unless you're an elite level marathoner, it, like most people aren't, they don't actually end up having a very good shape of their body. It's because it's, it's favoring, like the, there's a lot of cortisol that's being produced by the body. That's very stressful and breaks down muscle tissue. And there's potentially a lot of also estrogen storage that's not being, you know, gotten rid of like methylation is an easy way to get rid of estrogen. And then just supporting the positive feedback loop with the other more favorable reproductive hormones, which can be done through nutrition, obviously, and supplementation and, you know, micronutrients, but also through training. Got it. Yeah, that's, I'm excited. I'm just about to embark on a fun experiment for myself. I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I grew up with the filter that I wasn't an athlete that was largely from my parents just because they wanted us to focus on academics. And it, as an adult, I've developed a love for different types of athletic activities um, and especially realized I have really high fast twitch. And so I'm going to be training with some local uh, track athletes doing sprinting and pole vaulting, which are very explosive movements. And I'm excited for that. But that makes sense when you um, explain the way that that impacts the body so directly. And you've made a really strong case of challenging a lot of the common dietary and fitness dogma out there. If someone wants to keep learning from you and wants to kind of start on this journey, where's the best starting place that I can send them? So I would, I would say, like, I think, so we have a few um, Facebook groups that are great. So the Thermo Diet community on Facebook is a great one. It's just a, you know, free group, a lot of good interaction there, a lot of discussion, people are talking about stuff. Uh, we just started in a platform, a fitness platform called Umzu Fit. And so if people just go over to umzu.com, umzu.com, uh, and just search for Umzu Fit, you can find it over there. But it's, you know, for people that are really interested in learning about all this stuff, Umzu Fit's great because we have all of our courses in there. And then we also have a community in there. So it's, it's like a hybrid basically between, you know, a forum, kind of like Reddit and a Facebook group. But then you also get access to all the, the courses. And at the moment, at the time of recording this, we have 16 courses in there, uh, including the Thermo Diet, uh, as well as different fitness courses for both men and women. 
and um, you know it's a pretty fun community so far. So I, I would just have you know if you're interested, just check out umzu.com uh, and then check out the Thermodiet group on on uh, Facebook. And I'll put those links in the show notes at wellnessmama.fm for those of you who are listening while you work out or drive, you can find everything there. And I'll make sure we link to Umzu as well because you mentioned your supplements in passing, but you have a whole suite of amazing supplements. My husband's on quite a few of them for testosterone and has seen great results. So I'll make sure we link to all of those as well. A somewhat unrelated question I love to ask at the end of interviews selfishly because I'm always looking for new reading material is if there's a book or a number of books that have really impacted your life and if so, what they are and why. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. I love reading. So I have tons of books. I would say that my favorite one, or I have a favorite author, Balthazar Gracian. So he was a Jesuit monk very wise dude, like very, very smart. And the way he writes is in kind of like aphorisms, uh, like little nuggets of, of stuff. And a good one that I would recommend is um, The Art of Worldly Wisdom. It's, it's just like a great read. Um, you can sit down and he's the kind of writer where you read, well, he'll, he'll write like two or three sentences of, of like a smart observation that he made. And this was hundreds of years ago. This guy's like, long gone right but he uh he writes these little like just a couple sentences but you could chew on that for months it's like super packed with wisdom so i love reading his stuff and it's just kind of good rules for life rules to or or they're more principle based you know so i'd recommend baltazar gracian that's a new suggestion i'll have to check that out i'm excited and Thank you so much, Chris, for being here, for sharing. I, I have gotten an increasing number of questions about the thermo diet recently, and I know that it's definitely getting more and more popular right now, and you're helping thousands of people. I'm excited that you shared so much of this with us today, and I'm appreciative of your time. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Katie. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for letting me share. And thank you, as always, for sharing your most valuable asset, your time with both of us today. We're so grateful that you did, and I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.